God, you take away this building, we're still the church. You take away this sound system, we're still the church. You take away any programs we've created, you're st we're still the church. Because it is grounded, founded on the rock that is Jesus Christ and our faith in it. And it is our faith in you that bonds us to one another in this community called the church. And God, forgive me for the times that I've made church about more than Jesus. Forgive me for the times, God, that I have founded or grounded my own life on anything other than you. Lord, I pray that when everything is stripped away, that it will be Christ at the core of it all here. And it's your praise that we sing. It's your holy life that we wish to live. It's the fire of your love that is burning strong inside of our hearts. Any times that we've been distracted or maybe we, we come together just for our own individual purposes. God, I pray that you lift our eyes higher, our vision bigger, and that we might learn when we gather together to fall in love with Jesus all over again to surrender our lives all over again, to receive your grace and mercy all over again, knowing that you're the God who redeems and restores and sets right, and no one and nothing can exhaust your grace and your love. So, Lord, when we do meet in this warm building, thank you for heat. <laughs> Lord, may we give thanks to you. When we do sing and we have the sound system and all of that, God, may it only call, be a conduit by which our hearts sing and stand in awe of you. And when we hear your word, God, may it not be about entertainment or come and keep my attention, but God, I pray that it would be about God. How would you have, how are you speaking to me today? Lord, that in all things that we might be open, saying, God, come do what you will in our lives and build your church starting with the foundation of Christ. We love you. We praise you. What a joy and pleasure it is to worship you. Come, do something among us that only you can do. May the wind and the fire of your spirit move because we absolutely need you. We are never meant, if we have all of this stuff but no Holy Spirit, we are nothing. If we have all of this but no love of God coursing through our community, we are nothing. For it is only, we are only alive by your spirit. And so may you come do what you wish to do in and among us. We say come. Holy Spirit. We know you dwell within us, we, but we welcome you. 
to come to you, say, burn up whatever is not of you within us. Yeah, so with that, Lord, prepare our hearts now to hear your word. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, it is so good to see you guys. Thank you, Michael. I got yours earlier. Thank you. Uh, I told first service that before service started, um, one of our own, Kevin Minahan, told me, he said, you know, he says, I think Trinity's the kind of church that even if we had to meet around barrels of fire, people would still show up. And I said, I said, I think you're right, man. I said, I think you're right. However, I've never been so grateful for heat in my life as today. My goodness. My goodness. Well, I hope everybody's pipes are okay, um, that you made it okay and did okay yesterday. But um, let's go ahead and and dig in today, because uh, what I feel like God's given me to share today, and as he unpacked it for me, it, it kind of messed me up a bit, so I get to share that. Um, so back, just to give us context first, back before COVID became a pandemic, there's a, there's a novel that came out called Five Feet Apart. Um, it was made into a movie like a, a year or so after that. Anybody seen this? It's not super popular. Somebody, Greg has so, so Five Feet Apart uh, is not about social distancing and a health crisis, okay? It, it's actually a love story between two teenagers named Will and Stella who meet and are drawn to each other, but they can never get too close because if they get within five feet physically of one another, they're actually risking each other's lives. How's that for a dark twist on a romance story? But the, the reason being is because they, they both have a genetic disorder called cystic fibrosis, which makes it highly likely to contract an infection in the lungs. And so they meet in the hospital uh, as they're both awaiting lung transplants. And in the meantime, uh, they, they meeting each other, they fall for each other, they want to have a relationship, but they realize that if they give each other an infection of any kind, it ruins their chance at a lung transplant and a longer life. So the whole, the whole story is about these two people trying to figure out how do you have a relationship and remain five feet apart. And as you're going through the story, it makes you wonder, what, would, what must it be like to love someone so strongly but risk your life or their life to be with them? Well, when we open our Bibles, we see this is actually the story of God and humanity. Let me explain. At the beginning of the Bible, God created the world. He created us, human beings, special. We saw four weeks ago in our current series how he made us, set his love upon us, and placed us in a place of complete harmony called Eden. God with us, us with God. But all that changed. And the first man and woman thought they'd be better off without God. They trusted their own desires over God's word. You guys get the story. They made, thought they could make better gods than God, and they rebelled against him. But in the rebellion, they caused something called sin to infect the human soul. 
And that created a divide much bigger than five feet between us and God. And so the question that begins early on in the Bible story that, that you're, we're meant to be asking ourselves is, well, how is it that a, that, a, that a holy God could be near or close to an unholy people? That yes, he loves us. And he came near in his holy presence, but, but, but if he comes near to us, how could we stand? More on that soon. But I hope that we've seen so far throughout this series, and if this is your first week, don't worry. You'll still be able to follow today. But I hope we've seen throughout the series that this is really a story about God and love seeking to be with humanity despite the chasm between us. And in week three, we saw that how, no matter how evil the world became, God still reached out and made a special relationship called covenant with a man named Noah. And then two weeks ago, we saw how God reached out to one of Noah's descendants named Abraham, and he made a promise or a covenant with him, gave him many, promising many descendants in a land. And then last week, we saw how God reaffirmed that covenant to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and he showed Jacob this, this, this dream of a ladder of angels coming down and going up from heaven itself. But all of that shows us that God is still moving toward us. God is moving toward us despite the sin of Eden. God keeps moving toward humanity and unveiling his plan that I'm going to be near you again. But the divide still remains. And the question has not been yet answered, at least from what we've read thus far. How is it that a holy God could ever be with us, an unholy people? Is it even possible? Well, today we're going to look at the book after Genesis called Exodus and see how God, our God of holy love, moves even closer. And as we continue in our series, Great is His Faithfulness, we're going to go look now at a covenant that God made with Jacob's descendants, Moses and the Israelites. Context. The Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And working through Moses, God delivers the Israelites from Egypt and promises to lead them to the same land he promised Abraham. But before they get to the promised land, they, they have to go through a wilderness called Sinai and stop. And I'm sure if you, we were those people who would be asking, oh God, why are you stopping? <laughs> why are you stopping? we got a good place to get to. There's no way Sinai can be the promised land. And it's not. But it's often in the wilderness seasons that we find and discover who our God is and who we are meant to be. And so in this, we're going to be asking today, what is God's grand vision for his people? Two, what stands in the way of that? But three, how does God relentlessly, marvelously, beautifully still make a way for us to be with him? Exodus 19 is where we're going to start today, verses 1 to 19. Now, we're going to, we're reading 19 verses. My guess is some of us, uh, it's easy for our mind to trail off. So let me just give you three things to think about, all right, as we're reading this. As we're reading this, what does God say? What does God do? And three, how do the people respond? Just focus on that first. What does God do or say? What does God do? How do the people respond? All right. You guys ready? Got, two, got this little section. Anybody over here ready? 
Yeah, good. All right. Exodus 19, verse 1. What does God say? What does he do? People's reaction. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. If you got your own Bible, you underline that phrase, treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, underline that too, and a holy nation, underline that too. All right. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn shouts, sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. And after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Everybody say fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Lord, as we hear your word, I invite you to please come use it to transform our lives. Help our minds to understand, but our hearts to experience your love and to learn to love you in return. And may you all change our will, our very desire, that it might be after the things you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 19 is a wild picture. <laughs> but I want you to imagine, just for a second, that you are one of these Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai as God's holy presence descends upon it. It says that his presence is like fire. And the created world reacts to it with thunder and lightning. Then the mountain trembles. Or maybe that's just you. Or maybe that's the mountain. It's actually both. Right? 
This is the picture we see several times in the Old Testament. God's holy presence arriving. Prepare yourself. It's terrifying. And something, when we see something like this, we can't help but wonder, like, is this the God of love you just mentioned a second ago? How does this and the God of the New Testament that we see fit together? What's going on? Well, to begin to understand this, let's go back to the beginning to what God said and the vision he lays out here. What's his vision for his people? We see that God's ultimate vision, his relentless pursuit, is for humanity to be with him and like him. And we use that language in this church a lot of with him, like him. But I want to show you where that's coming from even here. If you're traveling through the book of Exodus, chapter 19 is one of those stop and pull over kind of moments. Because to go back to the start of Exodus, it's quite bleak. The Israelites are under the oppression of Pharaoh. These are the descendants of Abraham. And, and Jacob, as we talked about the previous two weeks, like, what's going on? God, where are you? Why are they in slavery? But even when hope seems lost, God never forgets his promise. And God hears their cries and calls a leader named Moses, and he delivers them in power. And from Exodus 1 to chapter 12, he makes the superpower Egypt look small. We see time and again, there's no God like our God. And then from Exodus 12 to 18, God leads them through the Red Sea and into this uninhabited wilderness and on the way to the promised land. But during that journey, the people doubt God. They complain. They want to go back to Egypt. And this story shows us that, oh, God didn't choose them because they were so great or they had special goodness. It seems as if he chose them despite who they are, their lack of faith, their character issues. And God doesn't call any of us because we're so good either, but because he's so gracious. And when the Israelites finally reached the base of Mount Sinai, they set up camp. And if they stop, then this means it's a good moment to stop and pay attention. What's God saying? What's God doing? And he reveals to them here that God not only delivers us from our bondage, but for his greater vision of freedom. I'm glad somebody got that. That was definitely an amen moment. Not just from, but for his greater vision of freedom. God called Moses up to the mountain and he says, yes, I carried you out from Egypt, like an eagle carries you out, but I brought you for a relationship with me. And what kind of relationship did God envision for them? First, he says, although the whole earth is mine, meaning there's one true God, he is the king of all that is, he says, I chose you as a treasured possession. A treasured possession speaks of a special relationship to a king. But again, if we go to Deuteronomy 7, 7, he made clear to Israel, God did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were so great. You were so numerous than other people, you're the, but you're the fewest of the people. No, no, it was because God loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. If we belong to God, we don't have anything to brag about except him. If we ever take the holier-than-thou attitude, it's a complete contradiction to who we are. But as
as God's treasured possession then, he said, you are to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what does that mean? First, kingdom of priests. He says, as citizens under the divine king, they were to be his priests. Priests were a special class who had access to God's presence. They were freed from Egypt for God's presence to be with God. But second, holy nation. What is that? They were set apart from other nations or people groups to display God's holiness. The word holy means set apart, to be morally and spiritually pure, just as God is. That he told the Israelites, he said, as I am holy, you are to be holy. That they were set free from Egypt for a life with God to become like God. And as they live with God as priests unto him, they will become like God in character, set apart, different among all the other nations. But the reason why I've got to explain all this is because this isn't just the divine vision God had for Israel. It is God's grand vision for all of us who would be his treasured people living with him and growing in holiness like him. Now, there's some parts of the Old Testament, especially when you get to a lot of the, the, ritu- the rituals and the sacrifices, those were commands specifically for Israel for reasons I'll try to explain in a moment. But the, the vision of who they were meant to be for God is undoubtedly for all who belong to him. Jesus' disciple Peter picks up on this very thing, and he describes in one of his letters, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Where do you think he got that from? Exodus 19. That if you belong to God, it's not because you prove to him you're good enough to be on his team. It's not like picking teams for dodgeball, Right? It's because it's not, he chose us in spite of us. And when he did, he set his love upon you. He delivered you from slavery to sin. And he spoke identity over you. He said, you bring me joy. You are my treasured possession. And like a priest, I've given you access to my presence always. And it is from knowing who we are in relationship with God that we learn to be holy as he is holy in all that we think, say, and do. And that his vision is, is that as we become like him and we take on his very holy nature, that is how the world sees him through us. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this is God's stunning vision that all of us as treasured people might be to him as priests set apart as holy so that all those who do not yet know him might see him through us. You guys tracking with me so far? But if you know the Old Testament story, you know that this vision was not realized in Israel's story. At least not yet. 
There's a gaping problem that's still standing between the people and God's vision for holy people. And this story exposes that. What is it? Well, just as we cannot stand in a fire, impure hearts cannot get close to God's holiness. Now, you might have noticed it back in verse 5, but God says there's a condition of what must first happen if you're going to see this vision of holiness realized. And he says in verse 5, he says, You will experience all the, the blessings and joy of my presence, my holiness in your life, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. That if isn't God striking a bargain with them. But he's saying that the sign that we genuinely belong to God is that we obey what he says. And obedience isn't just mindless action. No, obedience automatically assumes that our mind understands it. That we've heard and understand what God said. That our heart, that we know God's love for us and we're learning to love him in return. And that then affects our will, our actions, our desires. So obedience doesn't make us holier than anybody else because it ultimately is meant to come from a place of love and humility. And it's a lifestyle of obedience. That's what it means to keep the covenant here. And that exposes, though, the very problem that separates humanity from God. Because in verse 8, the Israelites hear all of this and they respond to him, yeah, yeah, we will do everything the Lord has said. We got this. We can do it. I, I resonate that with that so much. So many times. I just like, yeah, I got, I got this day. I don't even need to talk to you about it. I'm going to go into my day and I, I can stand up against temptation. I'm good enough until I realize I'm not. And over and over, Israel too proves unable to walk their talk. Why? Because we all have a condition the Bible calls a sinful nature. And that very condition infects our souls, but also clouds our ability to understand God's truth. It hardens our hearts to God's love, and it disorders our desires. That while God made us from the beginning to be with him and become like him, is a sinful nature that says, no, 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 you determine your own truth. And it leads us to give our love away to lesser things than God. And we trust our desires. Those things will lead us to freedom, not obedience to God. And because we have this condition called sin, we cannot approach the holy on our own. In the Exodus story, we see God, the holy presence of God descends on Mount Sinai. The word holy is not one that we really get in our culture. I mean, I'm just as guilty as anybody for flippantly throwing it around. But it's one of the most weighty words that we have. It is inseparable from who our God is. It is his absolute purity and perfection. It is the very characteristic of God that causes the angels to, to, to fall down, the elders to put their thrones, and for all the people to get on their knees and worship to God. It is the very quality that causes the mountain itself to tremble. 
And because of what holiness is, it is impossible for holy and unholy to coexist. Yesterday, I made a very lovely fire in my fireplace. Again, because it was cold. But if I had decided to actually climb in the fire to get warm, I would not be here today. And when God's holy presence descends on Sinai like a fire, it's because it's God's way of showing that if the Israelites tried to approach his holiness and their sinful condition, they would be destroyed. I used to think that fire represented God's anger, but it's actually his holiness. And he tells the people of Israel to stay away so that they may live. But because God so desperate, please get this, please get this. Because God wants so desperately to be with his people, near his people. He moves close, but he moves with a warning that they must purify themselves. And we see throughout the Old Testament all these rituals of, of sacrifices and, and cleansing that the Israelite people must do before they can come before God's presence. It's all of that so that God can say, this is so that you can at least come near my holiness. But what we've seen throughout the biblical story so far is that with each covenant, with each revelation, with each promise, God is moving closer and our God of holy love is always moving toward unholy people like us. But thank God, the story of his redemption and his vision for humanity doesn't stop in Exodus. Because when we could not approach the fire, God made a way for his holy flame to live in us. So God moves closer to Israel. Israel moves back. God faithfully pursues. Israel continues to harden their heart. God allows them to experience some of the weight of their consequence. They keep on hardening their heart. But don't think for a minute that we could ever exhaust the mercy, the grace, the love of God. Because later in Israel's history, God speaks through a prophet, Israelite prophet named Jeremiah, saying, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Verse 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, with what we just read. But 33, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their where? Hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Or as he promised to another prophet, Israelite prophet Ezekiel, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. How? Well, all God's promises lead us to the day when Jesus, the true Israelite, came with us. That he was God in the flesh who perfectly fulfilled God's vision. Hebrews calls him the great high priest. He's the one who went into the wilderness like Israel, but yet he endured the temptation for 40 days and won. He's the one, Revelation 1 says, is the faithful witness. He's the one, Hebrews 1 says, is the very radiance of God's glory in the flesh. Oh, but there's so much more because he is the true and better Moses who doesn't just lead us out from human slavery, but also from the bondage of a condition called sin. And he said, if you want to know the way, if you want to know the truth of who your God is, if you want to know the life that God has for you, I'm that. No one comes to the Father except 
except through me. And when all these animals were sacrificed throughout the Old Testament to try to atone for sin, Jesus came and laid down his life as the once and for all sacrifice that we might be forgiven. And there's more. He didn't just die. Because if he'd stayed in that grave, oh man, he wouldn't be like, he'd just be like everybody else. A good guy who lived and died. But while he died on a Friday, he rose on a Sunday. And he crushed death under his feet, demonstrating... Demonstrating, not just talking, but with God-given power that he is the Holy One. And there's even more. And this is not some cheap infomercial. Because in John 20, John 20, after he had risen from the grave, he speaks over his disciples and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father that is God sent me, I am sending you. That is holy nation language. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you're looking at John 20, all you have to do is turn the pages a couple times. And you'll see he wasn't kidding. But instead of God coming to them like a holy fire on a mountain, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descended on them like a flame. But that flame came to reside within them. And the flames of God's holy presence resides in all who belong to Christ. That by his spirit, God is with us, working in us, so that we might become a holy people set apart in a world in need of him. He doesn't say that you got to figure it all out on your own. But he empowers us with his very presence that he fulfills this vision in and through us, his church. And with the fire of his Holy Spirit in us, we come confidently before our Holy Father. And listen, I can't, I can't end this without tying it together by reading Hebrews 12 to you guys. This is, this is one of those things that I think it just, just puts it all together for me. He said, because when we know that we are in Christ, in the very presence, the fire of God lives within us. Hebrews 12 says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire like Sinai, to darkness, gloom, and a storm, to a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. You have not come to a God of judgment where you getting close to him could destroy you. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to the very home where all God's vision is fulfilled. If you belong to Christ, that is your home with God, his holy people, with his holy people forever. With the fire of God's Holy Spirit in us, we come confidently before our Holy Father. So as a church, we're going to now take what we call the Lord's Supper or communion together. This is a time when we stop and remember exactly what our God did in order to bridge the divide between us and him. 
that he didn't wait for us to find our way to him, for we couldn't. But his body was broken. His blood was shed that we might be forgiven and that his very presence might be with us. But I'll tell you, in prepping for this message, the thing that got me is when I realized that if God's vision is that we would live life with him and out of that become like him, how many times do I say, God, I know that you called to make me holy, but like how much can I get away with in the meantime? Right, like I, I know, I know that you, you, you know, that that's wrong, but I'm not hurting anybody. God, I, I'm just kind of flirting with it a little bit, and I've realized so often, my question has been, how much can I get away with, instead of how close can I get to Christ? And as a church, before we take this communion, before we come up here and say, thank you, God, for forgiving me and calling me your own, I want to give us a moment of silence. So you used to allow God to search their heart. Is there any area in your life where you realize you've been flirting with sin instead of saying, God, show me how to walk closely with you so that you can do your work in me to become like you? So I'm going to pray Give us a moment of silence, and then we're going to take communion together. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you, while we were separated from you, did not know how to make our way to you. You, all the while, were moving closer and closer to us until you are as close as possible in this earth, which is within us. Lord, I pray that you give us a hunger, a desire to be with you and like you. That you allow us to see sin for what it is, as not something that gives us freedom, but as something that burns us. And as we lay that down, as we confess that to you, we just invite your Holy Spirit to come burn in us all that is not of you. So let's take a moment of silence now. Just allow you and God right now. Thank you, God. 